Bibles and turn with me to the first chapter of Genesis. There in the beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of Genesis 1 through 11, that's where we're going. We will spend more time in the first three chapters of Genesis, uh, maybe twice as much time in Genesis 1 through 3 as we will in 4 through 11, because Genesis 1 through 3 is the foundation of so much of the rest of Scripture. In fact, it's the foundation of all the rest of Scripture and the foundation of what we believe, our biblical worldview. And so uh, we are continuing this study. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of them provided for you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning on page 1. And uh, we're going to begin reading, if you would stand with me, if you're physically able. And I will begin reading in Genesis 1, verse 26. And we will go through the end of this section, which is chapter 2, verse 3. So, beginning in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You may be seated. I want to ask you this morning to make sure that your minds are engaged and turned on. Because the first half of this message requires some thinking about some very important things. We will get to some very practical application at the end. So if that's what you want, it's coming. But much more important is the, the foundation on which that application is, is, comes out of. And so we're going to spend our time on the foundation. We're going to learn some things this morning that will be the premise of what we're going to be learning over the next several weeks from Genesis 1.26 through chapter 2, verse 3. So uh, make sure your minds are on. Here we go. Why do I exist? What is the purpose of my life? Is there any real meaning or any real significance to my life? I wonder if you have ever asked that question about yourself. If you have, where did you go for answers? 
To whom have you turned to learn the meaning of your life? Did you turn to Dr. Phil? Did you turn to philosophy? Where have you turned? Part of trusting God is trusting that He knows better than any other what our purpose is on this earth. As Christians, we would say that we ought not to turn first elsewhere, but rather we ought to turn to God, who would know better than our Creator why we were created. When looking for answers to the deepest questions of our lives, we ought to look to God. Amen? Agree? As Christians... It should be our utmost concern to know what God has revealed to us concerning the reason we exist. So many people today simply live with no thought about purpose. There are even many Christians that exist day to day going through the routines of their lives with no consciousness of the great aims that God has for them. Not a few have unwittingly adopted for themselves the goals and the aims of the culture around them and oriented their lives around these temporal, small purposes. How many Christians today live for money and material possessions, though these things are passing away and ultimately not as valuable as the breath in your body? How many Christians live for comfort and menial pleasures and fun, wasting their lives away on insignificant things? There seem to be so few who even care to ask the question anymore, is there meaning for my life. Most just seem to look for meaning wherever they can find it. They don't seem to care about God's answer to that question. They're just living the best they can till their death day comes and hope in the end it'll all amount to something. Is that you? Are you living with God's purpose? Or are you just living? Answer this question in your mind. Why do you exist? If you're a disciple of Jesus, the big answer to that question should be easy and immediately apparent. The first words from your mouth when you hear that question should be, I exist for the glory of God. And you know that that's true because you know that God made you and you've read in your Bible that everything God has ever done, He has done for His own glory. That He works all according to His own glory. So if He made you, He made you for His own glory. And so whatever else we need to learn, whatever else we need to discover, we are sure of this. My life and your life exists to bring glory to God. And our significance, our worth is caught up in that. What does that mean? What does that mean to live to bring God glory? Well, first, we need to understand what we mean when we say that God does everything for His own glory. 
We need to remember that ultimately everything proceeds from Him and ultimately everything is for Him, right? All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. To our God be glory forever. The reason God does anything that He does anything, the the gentle breeze that blows by you today, right? The raindrops that fall, the butterfly that, that flutters, anything that happens in creation is worked by God. All of it is done out of God's delight in who He is. God is good and holy. He loves all that is righteous. He loves all that is pure, which means He loves Himself. He has an infinite love for Himself. God is the only being in the universe for whom self-centeredness is a virtue, not a vice. In fact, if God did not love Himself more than anything else, if God had another God before God, Right? If he broke his own first commandment, God would be a sinner and would not be God. In other words, when you get down to the bottom of it, to be God is to love God. God loves himself. When we say that God finds delight in himself, we imply that God finds delight in his glorious attributes. Our God loves those characteristics of Himself that make Him who He is. God loves His perfect wisdom. God loves His perfect knowledge. He loves His power. He loves His goodness. He loves His justice. He loves His mercy. God loves Himself as He should. And since God is constrained by no one, but does all that He pleases, Psalm 135, 6, our God... Well, the fact that our God has employed these attributes, His power, His wisdom, His knowledge, the fact that He has used them to create a world and to rule over that world must mean that He finds pleasure in doing so. In other words, nobody forced God to make you and me. If God made you and me, it must be because He found delight in doing so. There was joy in God in taking all of these attributes and employing them in this work of creation. This is what is behind all that God does. Every act of God has this at the bottom of it. Whether it's the creation of the world, whether it's His reign over it, whether it's His acts of salvation or His acts of judgment, God does all that He does to express His righteous character for His own enjoyment. And you should be thankful for that because the promise of joy to you is rooted in the fact that our God is a happy God and has joy to offer. I first learned this from Jonathan Edwards a decade ago in an essay called The End for Which God Created the World. I'm going to read you a little portion of it. Turn your minds on, all right? All right, it's Jonathan Edwards. Some words are hard. Just just turn your mind on and engage in this, and you'll see how this is really practical at the end. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said. You see if you think it's right. Since reading this, I have found it to be absolutely biblical. He said, quote, It seems a thing in itself proper... And desirable that the glorious attributes of God, which consist in a capability to certain acts and effects, should be exerted 
in the production of such effects as might manifest his infinite power, wisdom, righteousness, goodness, etc. Listen to this. If the world had not been created, these attributes never would have had any exercise. The power of God, which is a capability in him to produce great effects, must forever have been dormant and useless as to any effect. In other words, what good is the power of God if it's never used? The divine wisdom and prudence would have had no exercise in any wise contrivance, any prudent proceeding or disposal of things, for there would have been no objects of contrivance or disposal. In other words, without creation, without God making the world, what would he have used his wisdom to do? What would he, what would he have used his prudence to do? There was nothing but him. So that through the creation of the world, God gave himself the opportunity to use his attributes to express who he is. The same quote might be observed of God's justice, his goodness, his truth. Indeed, God might have known as perfectly that he possessed these attributes if they never had been exerted or expressed in any effect. But then if the attributes, which consist in a capability for corresponding effects, are in themselves excellent, the exercises of them must likewise be excellent. You got that, right? In other words, if God's power is good, then is it not good for him to use that power? If God's wisdom is good, then is it not good for God to use that wisdom Look at a painter who has gifts as a painter, who has talents as a painter, who has abilities as a painter, who finds joy in painting, but never paints. Not only are those attributes not expressed, not only are those gifts and talents not displayed, but moreover, the painter doesn't get to experience the joy of who he or she is. So also, God is all of these wonderful things, and through the creation of the universe, God increases His joy in who He is by getting to display who He is, by getting to employ those attributes which make Him up. I told you, this is heady, heady stuff, isn't it? But it's important. And here's why. Because in the creation of you and me, in the creation of man, God has done something very unique. We are the chief of all God's works. We are special. Why? Because God has taken some of His attributes that bring such joy to His heart and He has given them to us. When we say that man is created in God's image, what we mean is that we are like God in certain extraordinary ways. We do not bear God's attributes to the same extent that He does, for He is infinite and we are finite, but we do bear some of His attributes. Consider this. Do you know everything like God does? But do you have knowledge? Yes. So you don't have that attribute to the extent of God, but you do have the attribute of knowledge like God. Do you have unlimited strength as God does? No. But do you have strength? Yes. Do you have wisdom? 
Do you have infinite wisdom as God does? No. But you have a capacity for wisdom. You have some measure of wisdom. Our God is a God of love. Don't human beings also have a capacity for love? Right? You see, for his own joy, here it is, listen, for his own joy and as a great blessing to us, God has made us like him in these important ways. Before the fall, human beings bore these communicable attributes of God, these attributes of him that he has given to us in finite form. All right? We bore those perfectly. Adam and Eve had knowledge, had a capacity for love, had a capacity for wisdom, had a capacity for knowledge. Adam and Eve had these things, and they lived in these things, and God found joy as he saw his own attributes echoed back to him in his creatures. When God God saw Adam and Eve in the garden, he saw a son and a daughter created by him, bearing His likeness, and they became the chief objects of His love and pleasure. It was His joy to care for Adam and Eve and to honor them because they reflected Himself. They were glorious because they reflected His glory. God put His own attributes on display in man to the delight of His own heart. And this, in the beginning, is what it meant for man to glorify God. Each and every day, just by living and exercising the attributes that God had given them, Adam and Eve brought joy to God. Their thinking brought joy to God. Their speaking brought joy to God. Their actions brought joy to God. The way they related to one another the way they carried out their responsibilities and enjoyed their privileges, all of it reflected God's character and brought joy to His heart. Every moment that Adam and Eve lived before the fall was a moment in which God was worshipped through them. His own character displayed in their lives. Now one attribute of God that we have talked about a lot as a church is God's sovereignty. Now, strictly speaking, God's sovereignty is not really an attribute. Rather, it's a description of His divine station. It's who He is. He is sovereign. He is a king. He rules the universe. And all of the attributes that God expresses, His power, His wisdom, His knowledge, His goodness, He does by order from His throne. He does as a king. It is in the exercise of His dominion that God does all that He does. Well, so also, God has done something very special for us. God has made us like Him in this way. God has given to man limited sovereignty, a dominion over His creation. You and I, were created to rule. Did you know that? We were made to reign wisely and joyfully over God's earth. Indeed, it is in the carrying out of this work that man was intended to show many of the glorious characteristics of the Father. Here is God. And he has all of these glorious attributes in himself. 
And he wants to exercise those attributes for the delight of his own heart. He wants to do something with these attributes. So what does he do? What does he do? He, he creates a universe and he reigns over it. And he uses his power and he uses his wisdom and he uses his knowledge and he does it all perfectly and he does it all well. And it's a, it's a big ball of joy for him. Okay, He loves it. And all of it is done as king. We have been made to be miniature versions of that. Sons and daughters of God. We are not deity. And we are not like Him in many ways. But He has given us finite attributes that we are to use, that we are to find joy in as we reign over His earth. God's universal dominion and the joy that He finds in reigning over the earth and using His gifts and talents and abilities are this, is the pattern that we are to imitate as we reign over that part of creation entrusted to us using the gifts, talents, and abilities God has given to us. This God-given purpose, namely that we should have dominion, is integral to who we are. Just as God's sovereignty is a fundamental part of His identity, so He has made our sovereignty over His creation to be a fundamental part of ours. This, church, is largely lost in our day. If you follow what I'm saying, you will see that it is rare to hear a message like this in a church anymore. Man no longer knows who he is. Rather than understanding our, our identity as regents of God entrusted to reign over creation, rather we've made ourselves as just another animal, haven't we? We just classify human beings as just another animal, just another link on the evolutionary chain. We have forgotten that man was created to govern animals, to be different and distinct and to rule over them. Isn't that what it says? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We were made to govern God's creation. We are nobility. This is why human life is precious and ought to be treated with respect. This was no afterthought. This was part of God's design for us from the beginning. He says it to himself in verse 26. He says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. And he says right there to himself the purpose why he's creating man. What is man's purpose in verse 26? What is your purpose in verse 26? Do you see it? Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have what? Dominion. And God didn't just keep that purpose to Himself. He expressed it to Adam and Eve. Look at verse 28. He makes Adam and Eve, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and what? And what? Have dominion. So man has been made to fill the earth and to rule over it. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to have dominion? I mean, we know it means to rule, we know it means to reign, but what does this entail? Well, as images of God, we should look to God Himself to see what it means to rule and to reign well. And when we do that, we see we are to imitate our God 
in bringing further order to the earth. We are to develop the earth. We are to care for the earth. We are to make creative use of the earth. If we knew nothing else about God except for what we've already seen in Genesis 1, we would know that all of those things are true because we've already seen God exercise His dominion in all of those ways. We are to be scientists, discovering the wonders of creation and giving the different wonders names and classifications, marveling at the works of our God. We are to be artists, using God's creation as a tool to display our own creativity, making things that are beautiful and meaningful and display God's character in us. We see what it means to have dominion beginning in Genesis 2, when God brings the animals to Adam to be observed by him. And God says, Adam, you give them appropriate names. Can you imagine Adam observing all of these animals for the first time? Imagine you've never seen an animal before, and God brings each and every animal that existed at that time before your eyes to be observed and named. Can you imagine how Adam worshipped? (laughs) How each and every one said something about God? And then Adam, imitating his father, employed his own creativity and came up with appropriate names. And whatever he named an animal, that was its name. God did not come behind him and make corrections. Adam did his job well. And this was a picture of what it means to reign over the earth, to bring order to God's creation. God had placed Adam in a garden. And Adam was given the task of cultivating the garden, which would have included giving names to the plants to distinguish them one from another. He would have collected fruit from the trees. He would have worked the ground so that the crops could better flourish and the harvest would be more plentiful. Adam's gardening work was not hard work because there were no thorns or thistles yet. The curse had not yet fallen, but it was work. It was dominion work. Adam was being a steward, a regent, a ruler over the land given to him. And as Adam worked the garden, his days would have been filled with joyful worship. He would plant the seeds and he would watch God make them grow. Everywhere Adam looked, the creative power of God was on full display. Every shrub, every bird, every ant, every rabbit was a testament to the God who loved him. Moreover, through the garden, God was providing for Adam and Eve. And so God's hospitality, his love and his care were on full display wherever Adam looked. As Adam surveyed the garden, he saw a gift given to him by God as an expression of God's love. Folks, these were happy days. This was paradise. It was paradise for Adam and Eve as they used the abilities given to them by God in joy, exercising dominion over the earth. And as God, in a much bigger way, was exercising His dominion over the earth through Adam and Eve and in many other ways, using His attributes for His own glory. Not only did Adam worship God as he worked in the garden, but Adam worshiped God through his work in the garden. As he superintended the garden, he was imitating his God who superintends the universe. Adam honored his father by imitating his father. And this worship brought delight to God's heart as well as to Adam's. All right, let's get practical. 
What does this mean for us? What does God's purpose for man to exercise dominion mean today? Folks, I have just told you the meaning of your life. The reason you were created. Did you know that? I mean, did you miss that somewhere in there? I just told you the meaning of life, the purpose of your existence. So that ought to be pretty heavy in your mind. God has not called every human being to be practically involved in exercising dominion over every part of His creation in exactly the same way. Okay? All right, we're not all to rule in the exact same place, in the exact same way, the exact same time. Rather, man as a race is called to rule and to reign, and you and I have been entrusted with different places of stewardship, with different areas of responsibility. We have different talents, we have different abilities, we have different portions of God's creation entrusted to our care, and each of us has been given the purpose of God of reigning well over that portion of His creation entrusted to us. Pastor Gary Hendricks defines exercising dominion this way. See if you like this. I did. He said, To exercise dominion means conscientiously exerting yourself and your personal God-given ability to govern and manage that portion of the created world that providence sets before you and to do so for God's honor. And God's pleasure. To take what God's providence has entrusted to you and to use your God-given abilities to manage and govern well for His honor. Example one. Perhaps in God's providence, you sell insurance. You are an insurance salesman. You've been entrusted with the work of ensuring that people have appropriate insurance policies that will cover them when tragedy strikes. Your job is to do this well and in a way that will help your company prosper and its service to others. And as a Christian, you've been called to carry out this stewardship in a way that displays the character of God. Yes, even an insurance salesman is to worship God through his work. Even a lawyer can worship God through his work. Isn't that amazing? It's supposed to be kind of funny. What might this look like? If you are an insurance salesman, I would suggest that you should take care to know the ins and the outs of all the policies you sell. I would suggest that you should strive to have such a thorough knowledge of them that you become excellent at offering to people the right policy for the needs that they have. Our God is not sloppy at His work, and you should not be either. Find joy in the task of trying to be the best you can at caring for those you serve. You should work hard at relating well to others and at seeking out new customers who can genuinely benefit from what you sell. You should not be motivated by greed, but by a sincere desire to bless others in a meaningful way for the glory of God. You should not be swayed into making unethical decisions, pushing people into policies they cannot afford, but you should be marked by integrity and trustworthiness and honor. If selling insurance is a stewardship that God's providence has put before you, then for His honor, you ought to be the best insurance salesman you can be. Does that make sense, church? Do you understand what we're saying? Perhaps you're a nurse. During each shift, 
that you take, you're entrusted, your God's providence has put into your care the responsibility of caring for these patients on your hall. And so if that's you, you should seek to carry out your job in a way that reflects your Father. You should strive to maintain a sincere concern for your patients, just as God has sincere concern for us. You should seek to know everything that is expected of you and fulfill your duties to the best of your ability. When a new nurse joins the team, you should seek to be a knowledgeable and trustworthy source of help and guidance. Wisdom, patience, commitment, love, these things characterize our God. They should characterize your work. If a hospital full of patients is a stewardship given to you to have dominion over, then reign well and worship God through your work. All right. I have more applications. Husbands, wives, parents, about how taking what God has entrusted to you and using it for His glory and honor and reigning well. But you look tired. And I'm not positive that you're getting it, so we're going to pick it back up tonight. Let me, um, let me close this way. First, don't you long to hear the Lord Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What does all this have to do with the cross of Jesus Christ? We need the cross because we were created to be kings and queens reflecting the glorious character of God and we have gone rogue. We've turned criminal. We were made to be stewards of God's creation for His honor. We've abused that privilege and become stewards of dishonor. God looks upon us to see His own glorious attributes echoed back towards Him and instead He finds something dreadful. Not His attributes, but their opposites. Not goodness, but evil. Not righteousness, but unrighteousness. We were created to be godly kings, imitating God, reigning over the creation. Instead, He sees ungodliness. Laziness, sloppiness, dishonesty, arrogance, greed... God has looked and seen that human beings are taking their various stewardships and are using them to take advantage of people, to abuse people, and to hurt His good creation. Adam and Eve were the objects of God's love because they bore His image so well. When God sees us, He sees images that have been grotesquely distorted. And it didn't happen by accident. We've chosen this. We've chosen to sin. We've chosen to be corrupt. We choose each and every day to fall short of the glory of God and to use those things entrusted to us for wicked rather than good purposes. Despite all of this, God loves us still. Jesus comes on the scene, and like Adam, Jesus is given dominion. Jesus' dominion is greater than ours, for He is God Himself. We are given dominion over some little part of God's creation. Jesus had dominion over wind and waves and leprosy, nations and kingdoms. 
And whereas Adam failed to exercise dominion well and became corrupt, Jesus did exactly what God called him to do perfectly, lived a perfect life, died for sinners. He was our substitute on the cross. And he got up from the dead and he reigns now. Church, you do remember that in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to reign. We were created to reign at the beginning. We're going to reign again. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, is once again redeeming us, restoring us, bringing us back to who we were created to be. And even now, though you have become a rogue person, even though you have become a regent of God who has gone criminal, rather than reflecting His attributes back to Him, you have reflected sin back to Him. Even though that has happened, God has provided a way of salvation. He will receive you through Jesus Christ. Your sins can be forgiven. Your life can be made new and whole. The Spirit will return you to the kind of ruler God created you to be so that you will reign with Jesus and His people over a new heaven and a new earth. God can be your God and you can delight in Him and find your joy in Him forever. Don't refuse His way of salvation. Jesus will receive all who are ready to give themselves back to God and be made whole.